tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello. I don't know where you are, but where I am, it's a winter wonderland. Heaven help us. <laughs> we in the Midwest definitely are in the need of prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit that shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book. You know the one, the one on the coffee table. And today we have a reading from the book of Isaiah, the 48th chapter. And thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I, the Lord your God, teach you what is for your good and lead you in the way you should go. The Ten Commandments, the, I think I may have mentioned this yesterday, but I'll say it again today. The Ten Commandments are grace. People talk about you're saved by grace or saved by the law. No, you're not saved by works of the law. The Scripture says that. And when the Scripture says you're not saved by works of the law, it's referring to the the practices of kashrut. There is, again, we, we read this. You're not when, when the Bible says you're not saved by works, if you look in the context, it's specifically works of the law. And that phrase appears in only two places, in the writings of St. Paul and in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There is a scroll called Some Works of the Law, and in it it discusses issues like this. If a dead mouse falls into a clay bowl, the clay bowl is polluted. It may not be used. It must be broken because clay cannot be purified. Stone cannot be made unclean, but clay cannot be purified. So the clay bowl must be destroyed. However, if you are pouring water from a clay pitcher into the clay bowl, can the uncleanness, the ritual impurity of the bowl pollute the stream of water, which is then touching the pitcher, so that the pitcher becomes unclean and the pitcher must be destroyed as well as the clay bowl? The Pharisees said no. The Dead Sea, whoever they were, said yes. Everyone says the Essenes, may have been Essenes, may have been a different sect. But they would say, yes, you got to destroy both. Jesus and Paul would have said, get a life. So that scroll ends with, and these are some works of the law. So works of the law are the fine points of, of kashrut, of kosher law, and they aren't good deeds. The scripture says 
in the letter to the Romans just before, saying we're not saved by works of the law, it says you will be judged according to your deeds. And Jesus is clear about that. He said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you, could, you know, did not give me drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Well, those are works. Yes, they're the works of faith. They're the works, obedience uh, to, to the Lord in whom we have absolute trust. You know, obedience is is faith in the hands and feet. If I really trust God and he asks me to do something, even if it's something difficult or it makes it worries me, you know, I, the reason I'm not more generous is I worry that I won't have enough. And that's a failure on my part to trust God, that he will provide for me as long as I'm on this planet. And when I'm not on the planet, for that matter, it's to to disobey is a failure of trust. So... There are works, as I call them, works of faith, which are salvific. They are faith expressed with hands and feet. Works of the law, these little rituals that that, uh, were important in the Old Covenant to keep the Israelite people away from the gods of the pagans, those were works of the law. And now that the Messiah is here, he is our our law. So... uh, the Ten Commandments, when people say, well, I don't, I, I believe I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to obey the commandments. If I'm chosen, I'm chosen. If I'm saved, I'm saved. The commandments are grace. The commandments are a gift from God to you and me to show us how to walk in the world. I think I may have said earlier this week <clears throat> that they are like the, the yucky sticker that you put on the bottle of poison so the child doesn't drink it. The Ten Commandments are there to warn us, don't go there because it will kill you. The the commandments are God's gift to us. So, I teach you what is for your good. If you would hear my commandments, they say if you would hearken. I I should have looked that word up, but hearken? I haven't hearkened in a long time. I think it just means hear. If you would listen to my commandments, your prosperity would be like a river. And your vindication like the waves of the sea. I'm going to talk about prosperity and vindication in the word of the day. They're interesting. Your descendants would be like the sand, and those born of your stock like its grains. Their name is never cut off or blotted out from my presence. And, well, of course, this is a promise to Israel that that uh, this was a time when people actually valued children, that they would, part of the prosperity that God wanted to give them were many offspring, many descendants. However, I think this applies to us also, not just in quantity of offspring, but in quality. That if you are a lover of God's commandments, I mean a genuine lover of God's commandments, not someone who says, you should do this, but no, I should do this, then your children will be lovers of God's commandments. You know, uh, the, the participation of a man in the, the life of grace is the greatest indicator that his children will practice the faith. That, that if we are lovers of God's law, how can I get my kid to go to church? By loving God's law. Uh, not just by inflicting it on them, but by loving it yourself. Your children ultimately will do what they see you doing. And if you are grudging in your spiritual life, well, they probably won't have one. So you start early, and it's a matter of loving God's law. 
we don't love law by nature. We Americans, this is the, the world's first revolutionary republic as far as I know. And we don't, we don't love law. Well, as believers in God's perfect law, we need to love God's law. All right, um, let's go on to the gospel here. <clears throat> to what shall I compare this generation? This is Matthew, the 11th chapter, the 16th verse. It is like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. This apparently refers to some child's game about which we know nothing. But uh, um, it's kind of like uh, ring around the rosy, that sort of thing. Uh, or, or, well, Simon says, oh, I got that a lot in my youth. Okay. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he is possessed by a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by her works. Well, this is an interesting phrase. Wisdom is vindicated. And I should look that up, but I'm sure it is justified, uh, which is... Um, well, we'll 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 look it up. I'll I'll risk the. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Is this your floor? Okay. Okay. Let's see here. Okay. This is uh, but wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is an interesting phrase, and uh, you know I I don't know that I, if I can pull it up, that I really. Uh, understand it. It's it it edikaiothi. It's from the verb uh, 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 from the verb uh, dikaio, dikaio, which means I justify, I, I acquit. Okay. And it can mean it can mean a declaration of innocence in Greek, which I think is pertinent to this to this text. Let's look at it again. Uh, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he is possessed by a demon. In other words, he was doing something superhuman, and uh, because I wasn't doing it, therefore it couldn't be from God. You know, we can recognize uh, what when people are from God because they look just like you and me. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, you know, that, that was one of the reasons that, that they didn't accept Jesus was, um, uh, well, we know all there is to know about God, and if you were from God, you'd look like us because, well, we look like God. Not so much. That's the idea. John lived this superhuman, uh, rigorous life in the desert, and uh, the desert was a place of demons, and he must have had a demon. Well, because he was so unusual. Then the Son of Man comes along, and he eats and drinks, and, well, he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, that isn't right either. So what we do is we, we try to tailor-make the gospel so that it fits our life. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You, you can't please people. Um, this idea that is so, so prevalent now uh, of political correctness, we are so afraid, and with reason, we are so afraid to violate the, the non-moral <laughs> morals of the country, of, of popular society, because we'll pay terrible consequences for it. It's easy to lose your job these days, um, uh, it's easy to uh, to lose friends over a uh, political opinion with which people don't agree. Um, we don't talk to each other anymore. We we don't even argue with each other anymore. We ostracize one another. And there's a long tradition of that. Puritanism is alive and well in this country. And um, 
it's a Puritanism that, that has abandoned God. Uh, the, the Puritanism that has afflicted us is, is the heritage of this country. Uh, Francis George um, uh, said, we live in a time in which all things are permitted and nothing is forgiven. C.S. Lewis talks about, he puts in the devil's mouth in the Screwtape Letters, that, that the goal of the devil is to, to create a kind of religion that has no God, that somehow a, a mystical approach to science. Well, we're there. And these atheists have this strict Puritanism that doesn't allow anyone to disagree with them. If I, you disagree with me, the only reason is because you're a bad person. That's nuts. That assumes my personal infallibility, and I don't, I don't have any personal infallibility. 1 Corinthians 12th chapter, uh, or the 13th chapter says, uh, um, I know in part, I prophesy in part, and we don't believe that. We believe that we are absolutely correct in our opinions, and there is no human being alive who is absolutely correct in his opinion. Uh, and therefore, we need to approach one another with a certain tolerance and say, eh, I think you're nuts, but eh, tell me what you think. We can do that and respectfully listen to something that is, well, by our standards, outrageous. Um, well, it's very interesting how, how frightened we are of political incorrectness and uh, unwoke speech. And that's what Jesus is saying, that, that if you try to please people, you're never going to succeed. If you can talk about the Lord this way, his secret of success was that he played to an audience of one. He said, we read in the Gospel of John, I think we're on the 8th chapter, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. I always do what is pleasing to him, meaning the Father. In other words, Jesus didn't care to plead the please the Pharisees or to please the Herodians, who were a party affiliated with the government. didn't care to please the Sadducees or anyone. He pleased the Father. And if we resolve to please God, then everyone else can just think what they think. John came neither eating or drink, drinking. He's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they said, look, he is a glutton and a drunkard. But wisdom is vindicated by her works. Let's, let's translate that word uh, vindicated as acquitted. Wisdom is acquitted by her children, by her works. And I think that that, that is, let's, let, me, let me pull up that text again. I have it right here. If I can, once again, I think I have lost my mouse. Oh, good grief. Where'd the mouse go? I'll find it. I'll find it. Oh, no. Ah, I found it. I found the mouse. It was hiding under the desk. All right, let's see here. I got to click on this. Okay, and click on that. I'm there. Okay. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. It, it, they translate it works. It implies, you know, wisdom doesn't have children. <clears throat> However, that's what the text says. Wisdom is acquitted by her children. In other words, you might, may not be able to tell that something is wise or appropriate except by its effects. And I would venture that um, for instance, uh, um, abortion. Well, the wisdom of the age said, well, of course, you know, I'm talking 40, 50 years ago, that, oh, everyone agrees abortion is terrible. That, that, but, you know, in certain emergency situations, well, maybe it's necessary. Well, how has that wisdom been vindicated by her children? We live in the world of the children of 
the abortion rights movement of my youth. And there are people screaming that abortion is the most wonderful thing in the world and it's good to kill children. It's nuts. It is not good to kill children. It is never good to do that. And those who blur the lines and um, uh, kind of, well, there are certainly reasonable exceptions. Wisdom has been vindicated by her children that now we do not value human life. There are countries that are in such danger of underpopulation. (laughs) uh, um, There are all sorts of people saying the danger isn't overpopulation, it's underpopulation. Wisdom has been acquitted by her children. So I think that's the way it means what it means. Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with letters, and you can call in. Ooh, Waltz. 888-914-9149. We receive hundreds of your phone calls every day, thanks to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line. Our sponsor offers flexible life insurance and annuities. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. Zum Geburtstag viel Glück. Zum Geburtstag viel Glück. Zum Geburtstag. Zum Geburtstag viel Glück. Vielen Dank. Es ist mein Geburtstag und das ist, warum Sie singen auf Deutsch. Und warum Sie auf Deutsch singen. Ugh, you got to put the verbs at the end of the sentence. It gets very confusing in German. But yes, the the normal, I thought the normal German birthday song was Hoch lasse leben, Hoch lasse leben, dreimal Hoch. It's, uh, you know, a, a tender romantic melody. Moving along, let's go to letters. This is a letter from Mark, and he mentioned, again, with the comments on the ushers, um, the, uh, the Diocese of Orange County uh, put out something saying, assisting the handicapped in receiving Holy Communion, as well as facilitating the communion procession is the job of ushers. However, it is not necessary to stand at each row uh, while that row goes to communion, which has the appearance of keeping track of who goes and who does not receive Holy Communion. So, eh, that's a church document. It isn't a universal church document. We're still working on it, still working on it. Um, Oh, dear, I mentioned something, and sometimes people, and some people, sometimes they just don't want to let it go. All right, and with good reason. All right, let's see here. The next letter I've got here is... um, All right. Uh, If a Catholic person has a genetic disease that is likely to be passed on to their children, is it okay to marry and use natural family planning to permanently avoid having biological children? For example, a disease such as Huntington's Corona uh, or Korea, I'm sorry, or Down syndrome has 50% chance of uh, being passed on to a biological child? Should a Catholic who has such an ailment not get married, or would it be permissible to use NFP after marriage? When you marry, you give your spouse the right to have children. We cannot guarantee that we will have children, but we can give our spouse the right to have children. And if you look at the wording of of the covenant that you make, Uh, Will you accept children lovingly from God? 
and and when you fill out the papers in the rectory as you prepare for marriage, that's what you're conceding, the right to have children. That's what I was taught. There are circumstances, and they should be pretty grave, in which a couple decide not to have children using legitimate means. However, I have met so many people who have were told by doctors that they would never have healthy children, and they've had wonderfully healthy children. And I have met people who did not know how they would manage to to uh, care for a child who had Down syndrome, and that child becomes the joy uh, and the life of the whole family. So uh, you trust God. Um, it would have to be a pretty extreme circumstance uh, to, to uh, uh, say that marriage and children were not in- integrally related. But I believe, and if I'm wrong, I would love a good. I'm not. I don't consider myself a great moral theologian. If there is a better moral theologian uh, out there, I would love to hear their opinion on it. So, uh, oh, yeah. There was that live voice in my head. The voice, in, the voice in my head said it was an interesting question, and it is. Okay, let us go to another another uh, letter here. I've got a letter right here. Okay, and if I click on it, it ah, it did appear. All right. <clears throat> the great controversy about Psalms. I I read Canon. Uh, which Canon did I read? Canon Law. Law shot from God. No, that's not what it means. By the way, this, this is kind of interesting. Why do you call it Canon Law? Once again, the word Canon comes from an Akkadian word. Akkadian was the kind of root language of the Semitic languages, Akkadian 3000 BC. And it meant a cane as in sugar cane, a cane growing in a swamp. And canes were used to measure. So it became uh, ganan in the Semitic languages, which went into Greek canon, which went into Latin canon, which comes into English canon. But it's a very ancient word, and it means a measuring rod. So canon law is uh, a, a law by which we measure the practice of the church. It isn't necessarily divine law, but it reflects divine law. Uh, so... And it creates discipline. There's, there are many canon laws which are related to the Ten Commandments. There are other parts of canon law which are simply about church discipline, and this would be one. The liturgical books approved by competent authority are to be faithfully followed, and that would seem to prohibit any change in readings, especially on a Sunday. And you can only have readings from Scripture at Mass, nothing else. Then number 22 of the Constitution on Liturgy says essentially the same thing, that you cannot change liturgical texts which includes uh, the, the lectionary for Mass. One would assume that that means the Psalms. However, I have made the point, instructed by the Reverend Deacon Chick O'Leary, who is a Kentucky colonel, the Colonel of Truth, uh, he reminded me that in, I believe it's paragraph 61 of the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, that there are appropriate seasonal Psalms. Now, the person with whom I have been discussing this uh, <clears throat> wrote back that I would still prefer the music director play a different psalm each week instead of the same one over and over. There are plenty of wonderful psalms. That's true. However, if you keep changing the psalm, it may be more difficult for people to sing it. That may be one reason why they want to pick one psalm for the Lenten season that is appropriate to Lent. So I just wanted to say that to make sure that nobody gets into a fight with their pastor. Psalms, there are alternative psalms that may be used legitimately in the Mass must be a psalm. It can't be a song that sounds like the psalm or a paraphrase of the psalm. It's got to be the scriptures. So there. I don't want any fights. 
Can't we all just get along? All right, moving along here. Uh, let's see here. Um, I got another one. All right. Best way, this is about uh, somebody uh, either called in or wrote in. I forget uh, about, uh, oh, it was a call in. Um, should we say something at the funeral about who can go to communion? And I think I think it's very appropriate uh, because nobody knows who can go to communion. And um, I, I have been in so many situations where the, the funeral directors will usher people up to communion and they haven't any idea what this little round thing is. So this is from uh, uh, Cleo. Father, the best way to address people attending a funeral mass that do not attend mass every Sunday, that they should not receive Holy Communion, but they can cross their arms to receive a blessing, Protestant is, is to say that they can cross their arms and receive a blessing. Protestant churches allow anyone to receive their bread and wine. Uh, um, nicest way to announce this prior to Mass. Um, I'm, there aren't a lot of verbs in that sentence, but I'll try to muddle through it. I think you have to point out, well, I, I point out regularly that you don't go to Mass to get something. You go to Mass to give something. You go to Mass to give your life to Christ and to his bride, the church. And if you're not there, it's dishonest to receive communion. Now, how do you say that nicely to a crowd gathered to say, we believe that communion is a solemn oath, not unlike the oath of marriage. And if you're not prepared to make a solemn oath, giving yourself to Christ and his church, then it is best that you don't receive communion, that the Eucharist. The Eucharist is reserved for Catholics in good standing. Uh, because it's a commitment. It isn't simply something you get. That's the difference. And and I have, I, you know, there's no nice way to say you can't get this. Because I want it. I, I want it. Well, do you want to give yourself? I mean, this is, I think we need to understand what communion is. Because we want other people to respect the sacrament. Communion is the gift of yourself to God. Oh, I want to give myself to God in the Catholic Church. In other words, you're going to not eat meat on Fridays and Lent, and you're going to do what? Well, no, I don't want to go that far. Um, well, then understand that that it's dishonest to take the Eucharist. It's a lie. Oh, I'm going to give my life to Christ except the parts that I don't want to give to him, and I don't want to do it in the Catholic Church. And I think that we need, as we talk about Eucharistic revival, we need to think about these things. So... Moving along, let me see. I think I, I've got plenty. I want to take a lot of phone calls today. Uh, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Let me do another, another letter. Click, clicking. See, I only lost my mouth. My mouth. I only lost my mouse once. All right, this is from... Uh, 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 an anonymous person. My brother is a practicing Catholic. Two years ago, he got married to a woman at the Antiochene Orthodox Church. He received the proper dispensation from the local Catholic diocese. They're expecting their first baby. I was surprised to hear that they're going to raise their children in the ortho as Orthodox Christians. I figured that my brother would promise to raise his children Catholic as part of the dispensation he received at his wedding. He said that the Catholic Church gave him permission to allow his children to be reared as Orthodox Christians. This confuses me. It confuses me, too. I don't know that the, the uh, Catholic Church would give permission to raise children in another denomination. We believe that we have the fullness of the faith 
which includes the papacy, that the, 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 the Petrine function, as we used to call it when I was in seminary, that this, this role was given to St. Peter. And to deny that role is to, uh, is to lessen the content of the deposit of faith. We believe that, that Jesus created an institution on earth. Every time you see the number 12 in the Bible, it's about government. 12 is about government. And Jesus appointing 12 to be members of the 12. You look at the text of Scripture, and it, it isn't usually 12 apostles. It's the 12. All of the 12 were apostles, but there were a lot more apostles than the 12. I tell you that constantly. The word apostle just means missionary. But there was an identifiable group of 12 that was, that was treasured in the earliest church because Judas ended his life. Uh, over the, the his betrayal of Christ, one of the first issues of, of, of business, when Peter gathered the council together, uh, uh, gathered the, 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 the church together, he said, we need to take, pick someone to take Judas' place. And he quotes the scripture, the Greek text saying, let another take his episcopate. The word is episcopi in Greek. Let another take his episcopate. So this idea that there was a, a, a body of people who were charged with the direction of the church and that Peter convened that body, he was the leader of that body, is really very clear biblically. And to say, I don't want to be part of that unity anymore is to have less instead of more. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of pressure from her family, and I have nothing but admiration for the Church of the East, for the, the Orthodox, who have struggled to maintain the faith under very difficult uh, conditions. But that doesn't lessen the fact that they have turned their back on something that is an integral gift from the Lord for his church. doesn't lessen that fact. This was important from the first days. And then you read, for instance, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, Peter, Peter said what he said, let's say 30 or 35 A.D., then a hundred years later, uh, give or take, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, certainly by 180 A.D., is talking about there is one church with which every other church must be in agreement, and that's the Church of Rome. I mean, this idea of, of, of the primacy of Peter and his theological and spiritual descendants is biblical and is early church. And to lose that is to lose something precious. Admittedly, the papacy throughout history has had its difficult times. However, we have been very blessed in recent history by having great popes. So um, your brother's making a mistake. That's the only thing I can say. Have him listen to this. You know? and, uh, and I don't think it has to be an either-or situation uh, for him. Okay, I have found my mouse, and I can move on. Actually, we're going to take a break. I'll come back with a word of the day, which I think is interesting, a uh, very interesting word of the day. And we've got calls, but we can take a lot more calls. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We receive hundreds of your phone calls every day thanks to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line. Our sponsor offers flexible life insurance and annuities. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states.
There's no business like show business like no business I know. No business like it. Everything about it is appealing. Why, it's grand. Everything the traffic yeah, right. Allow. It's all appealing except when I lose my mouse. You got a smash. No, I got the mouse right there. It's when I move it that I lose it. Okay. Let's go to the word of the day. I think the word of the day is a very interesting one. Actually, there's going to be two of them. Um, Where did it go? Uh, Oh, dear. Did I lose it? Hold on. Where did it go? I I, I think I lost it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It's uh, about the, uh, the vindication. Yes, yes. Your prosperity would be like a river and your vindication like the waves of the sea. I was thinking Greek and it's Hebrew. So never mind. All right, let's look. It's Isaiah 48. The word for prosperity is shalom. That means prosperity as well as peace. Uh, You ask someone, I got a joke, I got a joke. The nurse is fluffing a pillow and she says, Mr. Goldberg, are you comfortable? He says, I make a good living. That's a joke. Where's the lad there? Good grief. Yes. I'm moving along. Yeah, but when you ask someone in Hebrew, how are you? It's Mahashalomcha, which means, how's your shalom? Shalom it doesn't just mean peace. When we mean peace, it means the neighbors have stopped playing the loud music and I can get some rest. That's peace. No, no, peace has to do with your whole well-being. That wonderful old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, that's shalom. So this is the word that's translated in today's text is prosperity is shalom. And the word that is translated as, as righteousness is, is uh, uh, tzedakah, which, means, which really means, uh, it means charity as well as righteousness. Uh, a tzaddik is a righteous man. He, he reflects the nature of God. Uh, I, I'm sure I've told you about this. The Jews have things called pushkis, which are little boxes. And on, before the sun goes down on Friday— Orthodox children are encouraged to put money in the pushka of their choice. There's one for the Hadassah, which is the Jewish women's auxiliary, and then one for trees in the Holy Land, and one for this charity. And always on the bottom in Hebrew is written litzedakah, which means for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of charity. Same thing. So let's look at the text. Let's look at the text, which, oh, there, ah, there's the mouse. I've got the mouse. Okay. Uh, it says, your, your, Tzedakah would be like the waves of the sea. When I hear vindication, I think, neener, neener, I'm right and you're wrong. I've been vindicated. It's a much bigger concept than that. Your righteousness will will be like the waves of the sea. Your generosity, your godliness will be like the waves of the sea. If you, you understand that what I tell you, says the Lord, is for your good. So this is, you want to be the person that you know you should be? Study God's commandments. All right, let's go to uh, uh, what? The, the, yes, that's it. There is something the matter with your phone. No, it's just the guy at the phone. Moi. Okay, let's go to Kathy. <laughs> Kathy, what can I hello, do for Father you? Hello, Father ah, Hello, what can I do for you? Okay, uh, in Psalm sixteen ten, it said, "You will not abandon my soul." To the netherworld, nor will will you let your holy one seek decay or corruption. And I want to know that 
I don't know. I think that applies to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And of course, yeah. the mother didn't, didn't go to the grave either. She went up to heaven. But what to the rest of us when they says, we, you will not see corruption. Will we see it? Will we feel the corruption in the grave? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't know. I, I, I've never been there. <laughs> Uh, Could it be maybe no, that we miss our body and to a certain extent? Because I, I we are think, body you know, involved? this is a very interesting uh, um, idea. This is now, it's, it's, we're looking at uh, Psalm 16, verse 10, correct? Is that the yes. one? Yes. 16, verse 10. Let's, let's see what it says in Hebrew. It's always good for a, a, a fun time. It's, yeah. ah, this is interesting. Because Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's shakath, which means uh, it means the pit, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pit uh, it means it's from a verb meaning to sink down. Uh, oh, good grief! My, my very flexible mouse there. Shakath, you will not abandon your holy one to see the pit. In other words, the sinking down. It isn't quite. Corruption. I wonder why they translated corruption. It must have come to mean that. But um, uh, uh, it means destruction. And you'll not allow your Holy One to see destruction. Pagans look at the grave and they think it's utter destruction. We look at the grave and we think, no, it's not utter destruction. So if you take the psalm quite literally, it, 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 it means that that the beloved of God will not see complete destruction. But, interestingly, uh, everyone wants to be inclusive in their language. It's, of course, absolutely politically correct uh, to do so, and therefore we must. However, the traditional view of the Psalms was the he in the Psalms is Jesus. Happy the man who... Uh, happy the man who does not walk in the way of scoffers, the very first Psalm. That man is Jesus. All the Psalms take on a prophetic dimension about Jesus. And so we believe that verse primarily applies to Christ. And you look at the Shroud of Turin, and there was no corruption. I mean, the, the body rose before uh, there could be the, the, the rotting of the grave. Uh, so these apply uniquely to Christ, but in a more general way to all of us. Does that help a little? Yes. In other words, we won't, we won't get, go to destruction. We won't go to do no. uh, verb. No. Yeah, we won't go to to hell. Yeah, we won't so, go into the pit. You know, we the in grave the pit, in the pit. Yeah, yeah, we won't we won't we won't experience destructions, which is kind of cool. I I think that's Yes, neat. that's there beautiful. You, you helped me because I didn't like the word, you know, corruption. You will not see corruption because yeah. I felt like, well, what do we feel it? Then, yeah. you know. No, that's, <laughs> okay. that means literally the literal word is the pit. Well, there you go. I've learned something. Thank yes. you. Well, we have Thank one. You, we, we have now Paloma from Amero, Wisconsin. Are you with us, Paloma? Good afternoon, Father Simon. Thank Good. you for taking my call. My well, question is: Is what happened to Adam and Eve's bones? We don't have them. We don't know what happened to them. However, there is a very old tradition that Jesus was crucified, our Lord Jesus was crucified, over the tomb of Adam. And in Jerusalem, uh, there is a, um, uh, a, a chapel which is built at the top of what is left of Calvary. 
and right underneath it is something called the Chapel of Adam, in which you can see the cracked rock, which was which was cracked uh, either at the time of Christ's crucifixion or before. So that's uh, very interesting. That's called the Chapel of Adam. However, the Ethiopian Christians believe that Adam's grave and reasonably Eve's is in Ethiopia, but there's no proof of it. So we don't really know what happened to their bones. Does that answer your question? Yes, Father. Thank you. Well, God bless, and thanks for listening. All right. And and you're 10, right? Yes, Good. Father. Good. Keep thinking about these things, because... You think about them early when you get as old as I am? Well, you might have figured some of them out. <laughs> Not that I have. Thanks for calling in, Paloma. God bless you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Let's go to Rose from New Jersey. Rose from New Jersey, are you with us? Father, my question is, I recently went to a morning mass, and the priest is reading a book about the Eucharist. He's thinking about giving like a seminar about the Eucharist. And he was reading excerpts of the, of the book, and it's saying at the consecration, the congregation is transubstantiated. That just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem right to me either. I don't feel. And very... he also said he he also said that this was of Saint Augustine's theology. And when Saint Augustine gave communion, the recipient would say the body and blood of Christ. Well, that they were. What does that mean? That I don't know either. Um, if that was that was, I'd have to look that one up. But the I think Saint Augustine might have said that that we are transformed by what we eat into what we eat. In other words, that that Christ entering into us in His body, blood, soul, and divinity gradually transforms us into the very image uh, of of His sonship. I wouldn't be surprised if Saint Augustine said that, and I almost. Uh, um, think I can quote him at that. I'd have to look it up. And unfortunately, my dear friend, Dr. Shorish, who knew Augustine backwards and forwards, is, has gone to be with the Lord. So my, my St. Augustine expert is not available to me. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if St. Augustine said that we are transformed by what we eat into what we eat. And that isn't an immediate thing. What he's talking, he's talking kind of poetically, that spiritually, if we persist in our devotion to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, that we are transformed. But the idea that somehow we become the body and blood of Christ perfectly and automatically, I don't think that's true. We are the body of Christ, and communion does make us, does bring us into the body of Christ, but not in the perfect way that bread and wine become the flesh and blood of Christ. Does that help a little? Yes, Father. Can I ask just one real quick sure. question? I'm reading I'm reading a podcast. It's uh, The Good Catholic, and it's, it's about the Holy Mass, and it starts from the Old Testament. It's so beautiful. But what I don't understand, the four parts of the Mass are contrition, atonement, praise, and thanksgiving. Does atonement mean that if you're at the Mass and you have true atonement for the sins that you've committed, that they can be taken off your soul at Mass? Venial sins, we believe, are forgiven by any pious work. If we ask God to forgive our venial sins we, in the Mass, uh, in the Confidior. Mortal sins, one must go to confession if one is aware of mortal sin on one's soul, the sacrament of reconciliation. So, But yes, there is an atonement for our, our sins, that Christ's body and blood atones for our sins. It makes up for our sins and puts us back in, in, into a, a deeper relationship with the Father, which is what atonement is. Does that help? 
But it would not make it that if we uh, went to Holy Mass and we went reverently, it wouldn't take the punishment due to our sins away. That we would have to. That doesn't mean that at Mass, does it, Father? Um, to a certain degree, yes, it does. It's 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 penitential. Uh, mass is penitential. Yes. You see, you got to understand what penance is. Penance means to set up what has been knocked over. Uh, it's, uh, for instance, discipline. We think of discipline as something painful. No, that means a disciple is a student. Discipline is study. Uh, you know, that, that the Lord teaches us. Sometimes those are hard lessons. But, but yes. you know, I can't make up for my sin, but I can allow God's Holy Spirit to, if I expose myself to the presence of God by works of prayer and penance, I can allow God's Holy Spirit to set up in me what sin has knocked down. Uh, that's different than the forgiveness of sins. It is the renewal of, of the soul after the devastation of sin. So Mass does help with that. So that's what I was thinking. If you devoutly, because I'm really attending Mass in a whole new way reading this book. It's just ah, so good, beautiful. Good. Oh, yeah. And and oh, yeah. I'm just thinking that maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I'm asking, you know, I'm having atonement and true contrition and yeah. offer myself to God. Maybe it might help a little bit. I don't know. Mass but, does that. Mass it's just does so that. beautiful. If it is. other people would really read and understand the Mass, I wish I understood it more, but it's so beautiful, Father. There is a beautiful I'm, I'm just, video. I don't know if you've seen that video. Um, dear Voice in My Head, that video, what is it um, about the Mass? The Veil Lifted. You can get, see it on YouTube. It is it is very beautiful, and it just reminds one what the veil the veil removed, uh, the veil removed, and I think you put in the movie. Sometimes I think there are other things that come up that are not so good when you talk about the veil removed. But this is about the mass, uh, and it's a YouTube video, and it's just beautiful. It, it's it's what happens at every mass, even if it's just a few people and and an old priest like me. So there you go. All right, let us go now to Bob. Are you with us, Bob? What can I do for you? I sure, I sure am. I've been procrastinating this question for about <laughs> a year now. But uh, uh, I go to a parish where uh, the uh, Filipino part of the uh, congregation uh, last week in Advent celebrates Sabangabi. Simbangabi, Simbangabi, yes. Yes. Um, and uh, they use, uh, uh, like, uh, Colored uh, decorative pentagrams. Oh, they oh yeah, Five, they're they're like called easels. they're called paroles, and uh, paroles. They they are are five pointed stars, not pentagrams. They're to represent the star of Bethlehem. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're not they're not a pentagram as you know uh, the practitioners of voodoo would use. No, these are to represent the star of Bethlehem. They're on tall poles okay. and usually lighted from inside. They're they're lovely. We would have the paroles at St. Lambert's. We always celebrate Simbangabi. Okay. Okay. Got one other quick question. Sure. Uh, does uh, the uh, celebrant have to do a gospel reading in order to have a valid mass? It wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be necessary for validity. In other words, if he said the words of consecration and intended what the church intends, there would be a valid consecration. But to be licit, yes, there must be a gospel read, and it should be, especially on Sundays and feast days, the gospel of of the of the of the solemnity. So, does that help? 
Okay. It sure does. All well, right. Thank you very much. Well, God bless. Thanks yep. for listening. Let's you too. let's we got Bye. Steve we Steve in Westchester. We got ninety minutes, ninety seconds rather. What can I do for you? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Father. I'll be quick. So in the reading yesterday from Mass uh, from of Genesis and specifically the fall of Adam. Yes. Was the requirement or necessity for Jesus Jesus to come into the world based on the blaming and the sin of lack of contrition. So Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. Was that the sin, you know, or was the sin the taking of the apple? I wanted to to comment on that. No, the sin was the disobedience to God by the taking of the apple or whatever fruit it was. But I often wonder, what would have happened if Adam said, no, Lord, it's my fault, I should have defended Eve, the, blood, the buck stops here. Would the Lord have said, that's all right, we'll work it out. But even if there had not been a sin of, uh, an original sin, it, it seems that the Lord would still have come to the earth because humanity was prepared uh, as a bride for him. So the most, most writers on this that I have read say, no, even if man and Eve had not sinned, that the Son of God would have come into the world. Uh, he came to rescue us, but even if he hadn't had to rescue us, he would have come for love of us. And speaking of coming for love of us, Drew's coming up.